so yeah, we are in, this is our second week back in the building after a couple of months of uh, picnics and bushwalks and uh, ceremonies and protests and various things that we've been doing as a community, so it's nice to be here together. And if you were here last week, um, or if you're kind of watching uh, the evil metaverse, Facebook, or uh, your email, you may know that we are in the season of Lent. And Lent is the time in the church calendar of which we, uh, when we remember, loosely follow as a community uh, of following Jesus to the cross in anticipation of Easter. And one of the things we love about the church calendar is it brings us into experiences that life contains, but that we may not choose to confront ourselves until it hits us in the face. And Advent is one of those, because for those cynics among us, it makes us feel, uh, at least it makes us encounter feelings of joy and surprise and wonder and possibility. And Lent the inverse, for those of us who avoid pain, uh, it brings us into (laughs) confrontation with the possibility of loss and chaos and death and grief. And so uh, as a community, we feel like we have grieved a lot over the last couple of years and lost a lot in lots of ways. So we thought we'd take a kind look at uh, grief and loss through the lens of tears and laughter and the way in which they can act as a raft to carry us uh, through grief and in grief um, to the possibility of change and resurrection and wholeness um, and good things on the other side. Uh, And a lot of this series is about our bodies and our body's response to grief and uh, not bypassing our body's experience. And so last week we talked about this very strange story in the Bible of the raising of Lazarus, and it would take an entire, another entire, like, you know, service to re-go through that, so I'll just give you a brief synopsis, but it's this weird story where basically one of Jesus' friends who he loved was sick, Uh, And people told him he was sick and to get over there and make him better. And Jesus said, no, it's fine. Don't even worry about it. It's all under control. And he dilly-dallies. And when he's dillying or dallying, the text is not clear on which one, uh, Lazarus dies and everyone comes to him and says, you idiot, you should have done better. Why didn't you go? And Jesus is like, pshh all under control, he's just sleeping, but he actually meant he's dead, I'm just tricking you, he's very mysterious, Um, and he's kind of like a bit of a prick to to people with very valid concerns in it, uh, which may have been actually Jesus, and it may have been uh, whoever wrote the Gospel of John, uh, overlaying their own personality onto Jesus, we don't know. And then Jesus arrives there, all cool and calm, it's all under control, Lazarus has been dead four days, don't even worry about it, meets Lazarus's sister, who Jesus loves, the woman who anointed his feet with oil earlier in the story, and Jesus breaks down and weeps and is distraught and is deeply, deeply moved, which is very weird for someone who's got it all under control and is being blasé the whole time, and then flips back into, says this kind of like quite pompous and patronizing prayer about how like, you know, all these people are upset, silly them. Uh, We all know that, you know, we did this for God's glory and then raises Lazarus from the dead. Uh, And it's a mysterious story, and we could talk about that for like an entire year because there's a lot in it. But uh, one of the observations that struck me about it is that uh, 
this story kind of holds together the two halves of Christian tradition about how we feel about loss and grief and death and suffering and sacrifice. One is embodied reality, that it happens and it's real and we are deeply moved and that our body reacts to it. Jesus is there present with the grieving and is weeping and is distraught and is not in control and is not okay and feels it deeply in his body. And then other parts of the story, Jesus is kind of living in future hope land, which is, we'll all be resurrected, it's all going to be okay, I can fix this, there's hope on the other side. Um, and that in Christian tradition, we have this invitation into going no matter how bad things are now, one day all things will be made well. Or uh, other interpretations and slants on that of like, you know, just because there's loss and despair here doesn't mean that good things can't come on the other side. Now, there's bad versions of that, but there's good ones too. And so today I'm gonna, we're going to kind of like work our way towards that space, which I'd call the middle space between embodied reality and future hope, between what we are experiencing now and the possibility of resurrection or meaning on the other side of loss and death. Uh, and again, uh, I just want to kind of name that the there's lots of experiences of loss and death, and they all affect us really deeply, and I don't think we need to let um, the most extreme examples of loss and death trump all other losses and griefs and deaths in our lives, um, that our relationships don't work out like we thought they would, that our lives sometimes don't pan out, that we lose our favorite slippers. Like, all of these things, like, they, they, they matter. Um... So I just I think that like Jesus is pointed towards a wise model of spiritual healthy spirituality in this example um, that future hope should not bypass or suppress embodied experiences of grief and loss, and we're going to talk about how that can happen. And some of you may come from worlds and Christian cultures where that happens a lot. Uh, and I also want to tease out, uh, we use this um, Stephen Colbert clip, um, which you can see on the internet. I can link you to it at some stage if you haven't seen it already, where he teases out this idea of laughter uh, as a way of um, bringing, drawing meaning out of loss and grief and the idea that not all death is permanent and final um, and that in the wake of loss, we can still find meaning. So we're going to have a little bit of a look at, at that as well. Um, so... Lots of us who were raised in particular Christian cultures had, I'm going, to, I'm going to kind of sketch out two very binary caricatures of how we might see the world, and I'm going to loosely call them order and chaos. Um, and you who are philosophy majors, uh, just bite your tongue a lot during this because we do not have time to delve too deeply into um, Werner Herzog or Nietzsche. Uh, we will just touch lightly on some things, and these are going to be gross caricatures of the worst of Christian theology uh, and the worst of um, nihilism as well. So uh, we're just going to use them as very extreme ideas of a particular take to tease some things out. So... First of all, we'll talk really briefly about order. 
And I'm not going to talk too much about it because I actually really want to see what stories come out of this community to kind of uh, sketch this stuff out. But a lot of us grew up with this idea, um, and it's on this side. Don't cheat and look at the side first. I know you are. I know who you are. Stop it. Uh, look at this side first. Um, <laughs> We're going to look at order, which is the kind of future hope side of Jesus' experience there first. And a lot of us grew up with these theologies of um, God is in control. It's all in God's plan. God protects those he loves. Uh, there's other kind of teased out versions of this and other spiritualities of everything happens for a reason. There's the American dream of there's no such thing as luck, but just hard work and preparation. Um, the manifestation side of things, of speaking things into being. And there's a sense in which um, someone is in control of what happens in the world. And for those of who grew up, us who grew up in particular Christian cultures, it was this sense that it's okay because it's all in God's plan and everything will work out and everything will get better and the best is yet to come. And even if you're experiencing something bad, um, it was for a reason because good will come of it. And, you know... Celebrate that. Isn't that wonderful? And I'm sure I'm not going to talk too much about that because I'm sure some stories will come out this, this morning about this. But for those of us who experienced um, grief and loss to a point, uh, either through ourselves or in others' lives, where that got stretched to breaking point, at some point that narrative broke down for many of us in this community. And on the flip side of that, because often we haven't done a lot of uh, soul work around this, we're left with the opposite as our kind of binary other option, which is chaos. Uh, and this is much more the Werner Herzog um, Nietzschean approach, which is the universe is a cold, uncaring place. <laughs> there is only chance. No one is in control, and therefore no one is safe. It's survival of the fittest. And one day the sun will explode and there will be no one to remember that humanity existed. Um, and so we're kind of cast from the secure, safe universe, which uh, can really, really violate you if you have experiences that don't fit with that secure, safe universe, into the opposite where there's kind of no one to blame, but there's also no safety and it's also our job to make our own meaning. So what we're going to do in this bit here, is I have two tables with these things on them over there. I had to cover them over with a tablecloth, lest anyone walk in and think, like, that this is our actual theology. Um, <laughs> but what I'm going to invite you to do, there's sticky notes on them as well, and you can take a minute and you can get, oh, there's sticky notes somewhere. I'll put sticky notes somewhere. Let me find them. We need this because it's going to wrap someone up to reenact Lazarus in a minute. Any volunteers? Um, okay, so I'll find my sticky notes and put them on the table, but you can get a tea and coffee and go to the toilet if you want and chat with people if you'd like to, but we're going to have like three or four minutes on each half, and what I'd like you to do is gravitate to one side and spend a few minutes there and try and answer or just reflect on these questions. And if you're struggling... Try and engage with an experience of loss in your life, either present or past, maybe past if it's too raw, the present one, um, and ask these questions. How does this narrative comfort? How does this narrative, when can it disturb? Who is to blame for loss in this narrative? 
And how are tears or embodied grief, how can they be seen or responded to in this narrative? What does this narrative think about embodied grief? So those questions are on the tables as well. And you can kind of use, you can either just sit and reflect on them, or if you like writing stuff, you can kind of like write a little sticky note and put it near the question that you're responding to or near to the statement that you're talking about as well. So, you know, freely interpret. So Warwick's going to play some music. You can get a cup of coffee if you like. I'll tell you when like three or four minutes is up, and I'd like you to switch tables. And the reason for that is because I kind of want the experience of going one thing to the other as in kind of like experiencing the contrast of those things. So I'll tell you when like a few minutes is up. So go for gold. Okay. Who really did not enjoy that experience? <laughs> Graham. Anyone else? Did anyone have flashbacks of various kinds? Yeah, a few. Okay, cool. Uh, cool. Let's chat about which one do we want to do first? Should we do order? You want to do chaos? Okay, let's go chaos first then. Um, and these might be like snappier, so I don't know if whether we drag the microphone around or not. We'll see. Uh, how, how, how can chaos comfort? How can this narrative provide comfort? Seems like a strange question, but I think it can. Yeah. I think if nothing matters, the pressure's off in a way. Like, you can just do anything and there's no impact, there's no nothing, it doesn't mean anything, so yeah. you, it's quite comforting. But that's also quite disturbing at the same time. Uh, I think sometimes the having an idea that everything that happens to us or things that happen to us that are painful are completely arbitrary and happened because of complete chance and not because like everything lined up to be completely horrible for you on purpose is really comforting because it it kind of allows you not to be like oh my god this horrible th like these 10 horrible things happened to me all in yeah. like in collection and that is so positive because now I have this knowledge about this thing. It's like, no, it was horrible and um, it didn't mean anything. Yeah. 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 That's really interesting, like, that that bad things aren't just there. Like, no one's trying to teach you something through <laughs> making bad things happen to you. That's That can be very comforting. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no value judgment attached to it. Yeah. I think... I wonder how different it would feel growing up in it with a chaos mindset rather than... So coming from a control and order mindset, chaos feels a bit like a release because all those things that were restrictive are suddenly loosened and you can just go, well, that's the way it is. But I think starting from that side would have a very different feel to it. Yaha. Um, for me, it's the complete opposite. I grew up with the order and I feel very safe over there mm. because it's very much a, my actions didn't cause this, this happened because it was meant to happen, you know? And no matter what I do, there's no ultimate right or wrong action. If something's meant to happen, it'll happen. Whereas over there, it's 100% you're accountable to yourself. Mm. And that's scary too. Mm. Yeah, there's so many lenses on each of these sides. They bizarrely mirror each other and can be narrated in different ways in which they have the same outcome too. Like that, 
like in this, it can be completely your fault because you can still make choices um, and it, in this as well. And in this, it can be completely not your fault because someone else ordained and willed it. And it can be completely not your fault because it's chaos and it just happens to, it could happen to anyone. Like, yeah, this is weird. It's a dialectic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so how can chaos disturb? <laughs> it's scary? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but someone's, at least someone's got it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I, I don't know which is scarier, um, the threat of chaos, that you're not protected and safe, or that it doesn't actually matter anyway, that it's, meaning, that it's meaningless. Um, as someone who's, you know, come reasonably close to a complete breakdown at one point in my life, I think uh, that actually the, like, loss of meaning is potentially actually psychologically scarier for me anyway. Um, yeah, yeah. Total lack of control or loss yeah. of control mm. in both of them anyway. But. Yeah, yeah, Okay. Um, so we've kind of covered who's to blame for loss in this one over here, which is effectively kind of no one and kind of potentially yourself, depending on, again, which lens of it you take. Um, uh, without saying that the control area is the answer to everything, I think I, I grew up atheist and by the time, just to say very briefly, by the time my parents divorced, I was very emotionally distraught about this, the sense of chaos of divorce and relationships not working out and maybe it just doesn't matter. So for me, emotionally, as a teenager, um, chaos was something that literally was like, is there any meaning to life or not? But, it, I mean, that's much more of an emotional, relational take on it than a philosophical take. But yeah. No, that's very important. That's what we want. Um, how are tears viewed in the chaos story. And there's a few answers to this, but like how, what's your experience of tears under the chaos narrative? What happens to them? What is their meaning? What is their function? Um, I don't know if this is exactly about tears, but, um, or grief, or grief that I, what I like about this side is that everything that happens to you doesn't have inherent meaning, but you create what meaning you can from it and you understand it the way that you understand it. It's not like it inherently has this this meaning to it. It's you make of it what you want of it. Yeah, which is really releasing. Yeah. I think at worst I end up with just a feeling of desolation. So if you think of the floods at the moment or what's happening with Russia and Ukraine, watch all this hideous stuff happening and it's just, that's just it. It's there. Yep. The end. <laughs> yeah. And, and kind of beyond that, that like, it's the kind of like where does space end thing? Like when you try and get your head around where space ends. The idea that like one day the sun will explode and humanity will disappear and no, there'll be no one to remember humanity. Like, who cares about the war in Ukraine? <laughs> no one's going to... Yeah, 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 yeah. It's kind of like, why not accelerate this process? Because um, we're not left with anything. Any, like, no one's going to remember or care. Like, the universe will carry on. Okay, let's do order, now that we're thoroughly depressed. Um, 
Let's go from depression and despair to trauma. Um, <laughs> order. Uh, how does the order God is in control narrative provide comfort and security and safety? How has it? Yeah, yeah. If everything's going okay, it can definitely provide plenty of comfort. In the early, I'd argue in the early stages of things not going okay, it can provide comfort too because things are going badly, but someone's got this and we'll come out the other side even better. Yeah. I'm wondering, like, if just we're sort of wired physically, like just thinking of a small child, just there. They actually, you are in control. To a certain extent, you are in control and they need you to be in control and the steady presence. Um, there's this kind of model, well, that's how we are as people. On a meta level, why is that not the same? That there is, a, you know, in a sense, a quite bodily reassuring of like a, like a, a parent present. It's kind of, yeah, somehow psychologically reassuring to know that, you know, there's some... some to turn, you can play a child in this position, you know, you can be surrendered a little bit. Yeah, yeah Hemi was asking about meteors the other day. <laughs> Just going, like, could a meteor hit Earth again and wipe us all out? And I'm like, you're six. So, <laughs> like, how to manage this for you? Like, in a way that won't send you into existential despair too young. Yeah, you'll get there, but... Yeah. How, how else can this comfort? Has anyone had an experience of comfort? Whether you agree with that now or not. Had an experience of comfort from this God is in control narrative? Some, uh, uh, this is probably the only church I can say this. Sometimes I've wondered if religion has developed because we couldn't stand the reality of the chaos so in order to feel some level of comfort, someone's invented the order story. Yeah. Now you're into Nietzsche. <laughs> I think it's something that um, can give comfort a lot to other people who are watching people grieve. So you might... If you're the person grieving, you might not be getting a lot of comfort, but a lot of other people can go, God's in control of that situation. I know their child died of cancer, but God's in control, so that's okay. And that can make them feel a bit better and it won't touch me. And But for the person yeah. suffering yeah. it, that's a little harder to deal with. I, I grew up feeling amazingly protected by this narrative, like before it all turned to shit. Like I, I always felt like... My life is gonna work out. Like it's got like I'm gonna have a good life. And that's a marvelous <laughs> that's a marvelous experience to have while you can believe it. That somehow you're special in a particular way, that you'll be okay and you'll be safe. And someone's looking after you. And I know bad stuff happens to other people, let's talk about that another time, but like I'm one of the special ones, and it's all going to work out. Um, eventually, absolutely. But initially, like in my much younger years, probably not. I mean, I think that's part of 
what is so great about being chosen, right? Like that you can just become a little self-obsessed and just focus on how it affects you. <laughs> I mean, that's, I mean, the individualism, individualization of Christianity is all about that, of like effectively it's about, it's this thing that is actually centrally about you. And if you can do some good things along the way, then that's good too. Yeah. Oh, wait for the microphone, please. Order, order. The only, I guess this idea of that someone, God's in control, the only way it sort of works in my mind is like a longer arc. Yeah. Like it's, it's not going to be okay in five years. It may never be okay in my lifetime, mm. but somehow ultimately yeah. there's a bigger arc to this control yeah. than what I see. And that's, what, that's the only way that this can still provide comfort for me. Yeah. 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 So getting closer to some kind of meaning making, not on the micro level, but in the macro. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess just going on from that, I guess the order kind of helps with the sense of temporariness. You can go, oh, I've lost this person in my lifetime, but we will see them again in the future. And that can almost, I, I don't know, I feel like people almost talk them into the, the, that sometimes. Like, it's fine for now because I will see them again in the future. And I feel like it kind of uh, defers grief to some extent. Yes. Yeah, I think that's getting very close to the fourth thing here of like how a tears embody grief viewed in this story. Well, often they're just suppressed. And again, I think like Deb's comment about other people's anxiety causing them to project their anxiety onto the situation because they don't want, they want to be able to know that if they were in that experience, like your grief is making me feel like maybe my life isn't special or this could happen to me or I'm subject to chance or I could get cancer too. And that's making me feel very uncomfortable. So if you could just hurry up with your grief and suppress it, then it would stop making me feel death anxiety. Um, and this happened to a friend of mine <laughs> who lost her husband. And I could probably tell like 30 different stories about this experience of losing a husband in a church with very strong narratives around this and a very, very large, very strong community. And all these experiences of people going, he'll be fine, you'll see him again soon, as if bypass that, suppress that, like... All that matters is future hope. Why are you still crying? Like, um, one of the great, great as in terrible stories is her sitting there like three weeks back in church after like such an unsafe place to be. I don't know what she was doing there. Oh, that's right. She was on staff uh, sitting in church. And this old guy in the church, her, so her husband died in his sleep out of nowhere at like early 50s. Three kids just gone one night. And then this old guy in the church, a couple of weeks later, had this massive heart attack and got brought back, got resussed. And he was like in his 90s or something. And the pastor stood up and said, and let's call him, I don't know, Bob, you know what? I was, they were all celebrating about what happened to Bob and how great it was and how good God is. And he's like, you know what? I asked God, why, why did you save Bob? And you know what God told me? That Bob lived his life with purpose. And she's sitting there going, fucking what? <laughs> so my husband, the problem was he didn't live his life with purpose? Like that's, like that's it? And this experience of being in a community which because everything has to be good and resolved and is so uncomfortable with grief, 
and bodily experiences of loss because they remind us that we are not that special and we are not that protected. That there's this acceleration program from everybody around essentially just going like, get over it fast. And that pastor came up about six weeks and said, I really feel like God say, said it's time to move on. Yeah, six weeks. And a friend of mine lost her uh, grandma and her granddad who's this, was a minister for years under this order, lovely, lovely man, you know, has the emotional toolbox of most people who are in their 80s, men in particular who grew up in that generation. And a year on, he's like, I don't know, I don't know what's wrong with me. I mean, a few times a week, I'm still crying about it. I don't know, something must be wrong with me. And this sheer sense of surprise that, like, you lose your wife of 60 years and you're still crying a year later because surely you should have moved on by now. Like, anyway, so I've totally taken over. Uh, so when can it disturb? Any examples? Um, the thing about this narrative is makes me really angry. And I wrote down on that paper... Um, that if God is in control, that I'm really angry at God. But I know that's not, that's not the God that I believe in. So I'm not angry at God, but I'm angry at people who say this kind of thing, or I'm angry at everyone. <laughs> um, that I think, like, if things happen for a reason, or if there's, like, an overarching arc that everything is supposed to happen this way because there's an like an ultimate goal it's like well why do people in ukraine have to experience war why do people in hong kong have to experience authoritarianism like um but it's like and at a personal level as well, it makes me think, why do I have to be in pain? Like, and it comes back to this kind of like narrative that is particularly used around like acquired disability, that like if you now experience chronic pain and you're going to experience that for the rest of your life, oh, it's for a reason because you're teaching us so much about, you know, what it's like to, to suffer and you, you're, you have a gift now and it's like, fuck off. Like, <laughs> excuse my language. But like, I... I, why am I in pain? That's not I, that's not something that should happen to me. It's not like I've been chosen to like teach you a grand narrative, and it also sorry, just like no, 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 rambling. No, no, no. It also makes me think like if certain people are chosen to be like special and their lives work out and they're like like as you said before, like your life is going to be good. Well, your life is good because you're a white man, mm. and there's certain things that. You, that you have access to that a lot of other people don't, and why should queer people be marginalised and attacked on the street? Why should um, people of colour experience colonialism? That's not fair. And that's... Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. I'll have you know that we are the most persecuted people on earth at the moment. Um, <laughs> that was sarcasm for those listening to the recording <laughs> before I get contacted by men's rights activists inviting me to come and speak. Um, jumping off that as well, it goes into that whole concept of like disability and trauma porn that we, other people experience this trauma, other people have disability so they can teach people a lesson and that's not 
good or okay. You don't want to have to be teaching other people lessons. And it kind of makes you think that, at least in Christian faith, we're taught that God is all loving um, and all like kind and all that. But the lessons that he teaches us are cruel. Like, fundamentally, it's a cruel lesson that people have to go to war and people are refugees en masse. Um, people are experiencing natural disasters. Like, that's a cruel thing to do to teach a lesson, you know? Yeah. I think, yeah, sort of bouncing off that, it disturbs when it's used... You know, we, we, we've been subbing in the word control for this side versus order, which is the sort of title, which I think is interesting because it disturbs when it's used by others to control a person. So if my experience of going through something really difficult is that God is in control and there is or there will be a purpose that I might understand about it, that feels very different to someone else using this structure of order as a way to control my experience of it. Not to get all individual and experience about it, but... Yeah. Um, yeah, I just want to touch again on that last one of the how tears scene. Um, embodied grief is deeply, deeply disturbing to witness for people with an order control model. Um, and it's an affront because it taps into... Um, it's because it's not just about theory and ideas. It's that you are acting out the reality of loss in front of me, and I've spent my entire life trying to pretend that loss cannot touch me in a real and significant way. So one of the reasons we want to like lean into this tears and laughter series, and I know we haven't talked about laughter much, but you know it's only week two, because uh, <laughs> um, I think laughter is profound in this as well. Um, particularly laughter is... Yeah, found in lots of ways, but when we're talking about order and control and coercion, um, laughter has an incredible, like, under regimes, poets and satirists <laughs> are some of the very first people <laughs> to get hauled off because sub the subversion of laughter is a potent force against coercion and that kind of death and destruction. Anyway, we'll get to that. Um, but I just want to go back to that Lazarus story and sit with Jesus, uh, the second Jesus we see in the story, the Jesus that meets Mary after being all blasé and sees Mary's grief and experiences his own grief in his body and breaks down and weeps and cries. A man who was so confident that Lazarus was just going to be resurrected and everything would be okay can't really have that experience without massive amounts of cognitive dissonance. Um, and so where is the middle, where's the healthy middle space? I guess this is what this series is going to try and tease out. Um, but spoiler alert, it involves not bypassing grief. Um, but it also involves finding ways of not letting grief destroy us of how can you hold on to future hope, whether that be literal resurrection or whether that be some good things might still be able to happen. And again, like I've been in a place where I have very genuinely and, you know, not even just teenage angsty ways, 
believe that nothing good could actually ever happen again. Um, how can you hold the idea of goodness in the wake of such, such deep loss? How can you hold the idea of meaning on the other side of this? Not meaning in the sense of going like, well, you'll find out the reason for this, but of going, do my tears matter in the face of chaos? Does my grief actually matter? Does someone witness this? Can there be wholeness or some form of goodness again? Um, that's what we're going to try and tease out during the series. But for today, like I think our, our like one of the things I love about communion as the middle space is it's an embodied version of the crucifixion where Jesus, who in Christian tradition is the experience of Jesus, who is divine, being forsaken and experiencing forsakenness of the divine, experiencing the forsakenness of humanity, betrayal of his friends, <laughs> the loss of the great dream of being the Messiah, the death of and suffering of his physical body, of all of this loss compounded together, um, and also of this idea that death could not be defeated, and that somehow goodness came out of this that we are still talking about, and that life sprung forth from death. And so we're going to use communion today as a kind of a placeholder for this middle space, as Jesus has invited us to eat and drink in remembrance of him, we're going to remember that Jesus did not bypass grief, that Jesus sweated blood, that Jesus did not like float over the crucifixion going, la, 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 it's all fine. Everything happens for a reason. This is God's will. Like that Jesus actually suffered through it, but that Jesus also held some kind of hope that goodness might come from this story. Uh, yeah, so I'm going to invite you, if you uh, would like to participate in communion today, you're more than welcome. If you don't want to, that's totally fine too. If you just want to take a cracker and juice because you're hungry, that's all right too, um, to grab the elements, a cracker and a grape juice. And then I'm going to tell one very short story and then we'll eat and drink together. So feel free to grab those and just gather around in something resembling a circle. And I just want to say as well, while we're getting this, thank you for your bravery in sharing stories today. Um, yeah, it's just really, really appreciated because I know that for some of you, this stuff runs really, really deep. So I was listening to a podcast this week which is an interview between two women who have both been diagnosed with cancer um, and uh, in various stages of remission. Um, one of them, Kelly Corrigan, who is an American author, uh, and a bit of a historian as well, um, and Kate Bowler, who is a uh, Yale professor of divinity um, and wrote a book called um, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. Um, it's worth check, worth checking out, or at least worth listening to the podcast, Everything Happens for a Reason, dot, 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 if you um, are interested. But they were having this conversation, and Kelly Corrigan said, uh, it's a really beautiful thing that she took from a bar mitzvah, which is the kind of like Jewish coming of age ceremony. And the rabbi was talking to this young man about um, maturity is having two pockets. And on one pocket, you have the realization that you are 
a speck of dust in a chaotic universe. And in the other pocket, realizing that you are a diamond who is unique in all its ways and completely irreplaceable and completely beloved. And maturity is knowing when to hang on to which one. When each one really matters to engage with. Um, I like to call it, you are special, but you're not that special. (laughs) And that you are special and witnessed and beloved. But we're also not protected from life's forces either. Um, Frank Tupper, who's an amazing theologian, says, has this little phrase, God is arbitrary. Oh, sorry, life is arbitrary, but God is not. Which is like saying, shit happens in life that you're not protected from. But God is absolutely constant in witnessing and grieving and laughing and loving and being present with and doing all God can to draw all things towards redemption and love. And that's the weakness of God. That God is not absent in anything, but there's a bunch of life that God cannot protect us from. Um, that may be of comfort or it may really disturb, but I just want to sit with that for a few weeks and um, you can send me hate mail later. Cool. Let us eat and drink together. Loving God, this week, may we not bypass our bodies and may we know that you are witness to all of our loss and comfort in it. Amen.